but you can still see where Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake. You know, you can go where, where Cranmer, you know, just six months later was put to death uh, for daring to disagree with the still Roman Catholic teaching on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I am Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Very good. Yeah, doing great, Nick. So it looks like the weather has finally taken a turn for fall here in Louisville. So that means that J.D. spent last weekend at the beach, and Matt, you spent the weekend shoveling <laughs> three feet of snow out of your driveway. Is that about <laughs> right? right. It's, about it's right. been a warm fall. We have not had a had a freeze yet so it's been awesome yeah it's been really nice no i think it got below 80 here for the first time this weekend and of course that's when the puffy jackets uh yeah, that's out. right puffy vests. <laughs> so, yeah. so i mean yet haven't put on socks yet still uh, still <laughs> still except for sundays you know the high holy days sundays and high holy days i'll put some socks on <laughs> other than that oh man well you guys the big news in the anglican world this week is the defection and that's the word i keep seeing the defection of michael nazar ali former anglican bishop of rochester to the roman catholic church specifically to the personal ordinariate of our lady of walsingham he's written a piece in the daily mail explaining his reasons reasons which we can talk about in a second but we wanted to talk today about anglicanism Roman Catholicism and the differences between them, why none of us are or could ever be Roman Catholic, and whether the Anglican ordinariate is any kind of acceptable compromise between the two. So, you guys, as we begin this discussion, what was your reaction to this latest example of an Anglican leader doing what's colloquially referred to as swimming the Tiber? I was really shocked because of who he is. I mean, it's not... if, if. If, one, if a lay person who is somewhat familiar with Anglicanism and hardly at all familiar with Roman Catholicism swims a Tiber, I mean, that's, that happens regularly because, you know, that person probably doesn't have a good understanding of the distinctions. But, but you know, Nazir Ali, he's, 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 he's a brilliant guy. I mean, I, I can't imagine that he is unaware of the doctrinal divisions between Rome and Protestantism in Rome and the Anglican Church, uh, or Anglicanism. So, and he's been prominent in in promoting not just the the, the ecclesiastical formations of Anglican um, bodies like the the, the C of E or whatever, but he, but actually the theology under, under that underlies Reformation Angl- Anglicanism. Right, exactly. So, so yeah, he's he's been featured in you know yeah. <laughs> these these books that are promoting Reformation Anglicanism. And, and, and so it, this is what was so mystifying is how, how does, how does one go from contributing articles to books like that, being a, a bishop in, um, in an Anglican church uh, within the, you know, and also someone who is outspoken in promoting evangelical reformed doctrines, how do you go from there to Rome so quickly 
uh, uh, I think we off air, one of you guys, it was you, JD, said, it's like, it's like when your girlfriend calls to break up with you, you said, no, wait a minute. <laughs> Who else are you seeing? <laughs> we were fine yesterday. What, what right. happened? What, what happened? Right. We just went to Easter like yeah, yeah. last week. Um, it's like in When Harry Met Sally, when he opens the door and there are movers there, right? It's like, how long has Mr. Zero known? Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Well, no, that's precisely the point, Matt. I mean, the 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 prominence of um, him, not simply as a bishop, because as obviously we know, like Gavin Ashenden, I mean, there have been people recently, and there's a whole list of of sort of bishops who have um, had more outspoken and obvious leanings towards Roman Catholicism, either, you know, aesthetically or theologically, that is unsurprising, like, oh, well, um, you know, finally, that person came out um, honestly with their convictions that we've suspected for a while. But, but to your point, Michael Nazarali's um, was one of the is well was one of the um, kind of pillars of uh, of the the 21st century understanding of global Orthodox Anglicanism. I mean, he's you know he wrote the opening chapter to the book uh, Reformation Anglicanism, which as of now is still being translated. Um, into you know numerous languages and is is the building block and the basis for uh, building up um, Orthodox global provinces all over the world. And you know he's got the opening chapter, you know Anglicanism for the 21st century or missional Angl- Reformation Anglicanism that that ends with this you know clarion call to um, to hang in there and to you know stand firm with the with the biblically wrought um, Protestant expression of Reformation Anglicanism and then you know so you have that you have a book on Anglican mission that you know I think um, must be in question as to now whether or not it's going to be uh, I mean I don't know if it's been printed yet or not but it certainly is in that series um, and there you have it. You have this this guy who, you know, defection is like high level defection. You know, I mean, this wasn't like we said before, like just some some uh, random um, inconsequential person. This person has has abdicated in with with respect to the Reformation Anglican movement, um, a significant position of authority. And um, I, I with you, Matt, I'm, I'm quite shocked uh, for all sorts of reasons. And in fact, really. Um, when I heard the news was, was disappointed. I said, you know, maybe there's another, another bishop with a similar name that I'm misreading or that surely it couldn't be uh, Michael Nazarali. And yet here we go. And so there'll be a lot of, uh, well, we're part of that reflecting on how, why, what, and whether, um, you know, this should have happened and what to do on the other side of it. I'm sure he'll say more. Well, I guess I'm not sure. Maybe he'll say more in the coming weeks and months about why he did this. The the thing that he has said so far is this article that he wrote for the Daily Mail in England. And my recollection, I don't actually have it up on the screen in front of me, is that the main draw from the Roman Catholic side of things was the sort of historical unity of the church. He certainly had criticisms of worldwide Anglicanism that I think we would probably share a lot of, but he didn't mention any of the criticisms, certainly not the theological criticisms that we would have of Rome. Right. It was it was all just historic unity. And we, of course, have specific reasons that we're not Roman Catholic. And he may address those theological issues um, at some point. But uh, Matt Kennedy, why aren't you Catholic? 
<laughs> well, I'm not Catholic because I believe in the five solas of the Reformation, which are uh, our articles, at least uh, articles were written before the five solas were thought of as, uh, as a thing, but they, they, they embody them. Um, I believe that uh, the scriptures are the norm, that norm, the all, all the other norms, <laughs> so if you say that's true, um, so that, uh, uh, that you, we have um, in the scriptures the supreme authority um, over the, both tradition and church teaching. So um, far, you're one for one that's been anathematized yeah. by Rome. Right. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> and then, and then I believe in sola fide, which is that we are justified mm-hmm. by faith in Jesus Christ alone, uh, faith alone, and not by in, in our works, whether they flow from our justification or, or prior to it, <laughs> have no bearing on our on our standing before God. It's all Christ's work that we trust in. Yeah, but other than that, Matt. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I, 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 now there's some, dif- there's some dis- debate about how and to what extent Rome embraces sola gratia, which is the, the grace, grace alone. I think that they, they do. And of course, Rome would say grace is absolutely necessary before anyone can be, can be justified or, sa- or saved. And that is mediated primarily through the sacraments, they would say. But the question isn't really whether it's necessary, but whether it's sufficient. Right. And and I would say that, and Protestantism would say it's not only necessary, but it's also it's also the sufficient uh, means by which we are the, the whole process of salvation takes place from regeneration all the way to um, to glorification. Not um, only is it and, sufficient, but it's the only thing that can do it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Anything that we would nothing, add only takes right. away. It, precisely. Um, precisely. And then, uh, let's see, how many is that? That's one, <laughs> one, two, three, <laughs> three right? sola fide, sola gloria, and then there's uh, sola de gloria, oh, no, solus Christus, which is uh, by the by the work and merit of Christ alone. He's our one mediator and advocate. And um, as you know, Rome would say that the, the merit of the saints, and in particular, most especially of Mary and her intercession, plays a role um, in our in our being and our being having a place in reconciliation with God. Um, and so we, we need, we need the meritorious works and the meritorious prayers and intercessions of the saints. Whereas um, I would say we have one, one mediator and advocate mm-hmm. who is Jesus. And then soli Deo Gloria, which is, uh, which is the idea that the, the whole process is for the glory of, um, of God and alone. And many would suggest that when you begin adding other uh, other sources of merit into the, the the formula of of salvation that you rob christ of his glory and i would i would agree with that you rob god of his glory so these are areas where we still i mean despite despite the ecumenical ecumenical movement despite the fact that rome considers us separated brethren rather than, than apostates uh, and heretics um we still those are those are issues that have been or remain unresolved between us and the Roman right. Roman Church, so to to take the step that Nazarius has taken is, means he's had to, he has to he has to commit uh, and profess these things as the, the Roman position as being true and and reject the five solas of the Reformation, especially because he is being ordained as a Roman Catholic priest. Yeah, he can't. These are these are the 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 issues that lie between us are defeat issues. I mean, you can't, you cannot believe right. in sole uh, in, in uh, sole fide, 
um, and be a Roman Catholic in good standing, in good conscience anyway. You might be able to be a Roman Catholic and just not know what Rome teaches, or uh, might be a rebel <laughs> in the Roman Catholic Church, but you can't be an actual Roman Catholic with integrity and believe in sola fide or sola scriptura or sola gratia or any of the others. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I come at this, um, this whole question has been in, in no small way a concern of my entire adult life. Uh, when I came back to the faith in college, I, I've said before, naively just started taking religious studies classes, thinking that's, of course, what one would do when they wanted to learn about the Bible. And um, I'll never forget, I was in a class in 1999, and uh, we walked in, it was Professor Brown, it was an introduction to New Testament, she was a Roman Catholic, and this, they had just passed what's now infamously uh, known as the Joint Declaration on Justification. And she uh, sat us down and says, who in this class would consider themselves a Protestant? And I was like, well, I know enough to know that I'm not a Roman Catholic. So I raised my hand and who's a Roman Catholic, who's, you know, Jewish, other, whatever the case is. She said, well, for those of you who said you're Protestant and Catholic, you'll be happy to know that there's no reason at all for you to be divided anymore because they've just signed on Reformation Sunday or Reformation Day in Augsburg, uh, the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, which had um, by by representatives of the Lutheran Royal Federation and representatives from the Vatican, not the Pope himself, and not like um, you know any official church body, but nevertheless, uh, people more important than I am, or was, and am, and probably ever will be. Um, and I remember at that point, you know, of course, being defiant and indignant, and like, haha, like of course I would never do that, but it really stuck with me because we had to read it. And discuss it. And um, and fast forward, you know, 10 years, I'm sitting there in Germany, uh, starting my PhD with one of the 243 German professors who signed a statement against that back in 1999. Like was one of the main reasons I went to study with this man, Noker Schlinsker in particular, was because he was a defender of the uh, defense of the Protestant understanding of justification over against the anathemas of Trent. And that's when the ordinariate came out. So I'm sitting there, you know, in our little apartment in Berlin, the internet just started and I'm sitting there, you know, the great question for us, we Anglicans is, well, why aren't you not Roman Catholic? And this had been a con an obsession um, or a concern my entire life. And I wrote a, um, a blog post actually at the time, which for me was, uh, was, was had, you know, tens of tens of people listening, uh, reading it about um, all the Romery people is uh, what the title of it was. And essentially was a, was a reflection reflection on why someone would re continue to reject the ordinariate, um, not because of practical reasons, because practically speaking, just as Michael Nazarali had said, there are many reasons to commend and to, in fact, uh, respect a lot of some of the positions and consistency within the Roman Catholic Church as a whole. You know, some of their statements, like, for instance, they're, they're consistently pro-life, you know, even Francis, they're consistently you know, uh, as of now, uh, pro uh, male female marriage. I mean, there's some things that are, you know, sociologically very countercultural. And yet, Protestant speaking, um, it is a denial of what we believe the Bible actually says. I mean, that's that's fundamentally and full stop. Like if you join the Roman Catholic Church to a certain degree, you have decided that the authority of the church and its teaching is on par with and can, in fact, um, correct some of the supposed excesses or, or, or um, in outright errors, as some might say, of, of the scriptures, which, of course, was a position Luther himself, uh, you know, found himself in. And, it, you know, this whole argument, the tired argument of continuity and unity of the church and all these things is so 
is so overdone because, you know, first of all, the front one place where we see the, the uh, consolidation of human uh, unity and power in the Bible uh, most prominently displayed was in the Tower of Babel, which, um, you know, the Lord uh, took care of very quickly. And so, you know, in terms of like consolidation around one human or one human institution, it seems to be a um, something we should at least be wary of. But secondarily, can you imagine um, being the one person, uh, at least in the Middle Ages, uh, like Martin Luther, you know, and his handful of people, but we don't even really know who who had the temerity and the, and the courage because of the scripture, the witness of the Bible finally given to him to say, you know, what famously, here I stand, here stehe ich, you know, can ich anders, I can, I can do no other. And and the idea that now all of those arguments are, you know, secondary to some sort of uh, quote unquote visible unity or ecclesiological um, um, brother or sisterhood is, well, it's been argued before and you would have you would have thought that someone of the stature of Bishop Nazarali would have considered this well before um, coming to this point, because all of his arguments are think nothing that he argues has been any different in my life. Um, and certainly nothing has been any different in the the arguments from the Roman Catholics over against these, the, the um, fractured Protestantism. And yet, for some reason now, it becomes um, compelling. And I just, um, well, I think it's, um, not only do I not buy it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a sad um, final act um, of, of a formerly courageous Protestant leader. I mean, I think some of what you mentioned is probably part of the attraction. I mean, the, Rome doesn't, I mean, you said that uh, Rome... The, the magisterial office uh, corrects the Bible. Of course, they wouldn't say that. I mean, the Roman, Roman Catholic Church would would say that the the scriptures are inerrant. They would they would agree with that. Um, they would just say that you can't understand them without the inerrant teaching authority of the magisterium. magisterium so, yeah. Right. So so it's not that they're correcting the Bible. They're telling you how to read the Bible. They're correcting us uh, us wacky Protestants. And they, but that but see that's that's the I think that's part of the attraction. I mean. I, Nazir Ali has been in the, in the in the fights. He's been in the trenches. He's been he's been pushing back against against theological liberalism his entire career, and he has watched the Church of England disintegrate and split apart in various different ways. Maybe not institutionally, but and in, certainly factionally. Um, and I think he I think he probably thinks you know it's, it's, I need some rest. I need I, I need a place where I can be safe because we have this kind of we have this centralized authority that's going to maintain. The, the the doctrines of the faith as it has for hundreds of years and it's immune to the kind of splintering that we see in the Anglican world. We we're, you're never going to have an alphabet soup of Roman jurisdictions, although... Well, not officially, but I mean, not, the not entire German... Exact. Entire like uh, that's what know, I was saying. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so, so you're, you're right. But, you know, the, the, the reality is, I mean, the, the institutional unity of the Roman Catholic Church is is really paper thin it's what was it just like two weeks ago three weeks ago the german catholic churches a number of them got together and affirmed same-sex blessings and i think they even performed some of them i'm not sure um but the there's it's anything but unified theologically you have the kind of catholics who get interviewed on the late show like Father James Martin, right? Like right. he's right, right. he's not in step with the kind of Roman Catholic that Michael like Nazarali wants to be. Yeah, yeah, like Camille Pagula. It's like you know, self. Right. Or who's that? Uh, Mary Carr. You know, the the Roman Catholic poet. You know, these are people who are very allowed to be um, conversant in and you know sophisticated society while maintaining their 
their Catholicism in the exact same way yeah. you're saying. That's, I think that's the appeal, though, is that you think, I mean, you're, you're told Roman Catholic apologists will, 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 will push this. Do you want to be free of all of the chaos and splintering of the 30,000 denominations and, and, and within uh, Protestantism, which is a massive overstatement, um, then come home to Rome because here we have, here we, here is the church that Christ established and that has been in existence for 2,000 years without an, an, an unbroken uh, succession of popes and bishops. So, uh, so come home. And I, I, I mean, I, I grant there's some, there's appeal, there's an appeal to steadiness or to a to a lasting consistency of teaching, at least as it's proposed. But there's a, there's definitely an appealing aspect to that. But but again, the, the trade off is you you really have to say, regardless, I, I'm not going to believe my lying eyes. <laughs> my, my lying eyes tell me that the Bible teaches sola fide, but I'm just going to have to say, well, the church is right. And the Bible is, I'm just, I'm just misreading what it says. You have to, you have to just undo all of the, all of the, all of the, the insights of the Reformation and throw them overboard. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why fundamentally, again, that's why to your question in the beginning, Matt, how did Michael Nazarali do this is that it, it's, it, it does require a rejection of, of the, of rather sophisticated and well articulated biblical defense of why we can still protest. You know, I mean, I have no animosity towards my Roman Catholic um, brothers and sisters. I have a lot of dear friends um, and have a lot of respect in many ways for a lot of the um, theological sophistication, many of their theologians. Uh, nevertheless, I would consider myself still protesting. Like, I think that you are, you are acceding to yourself a power that the, the Bible does not grant you, namely the the you are inner you are stepping between the one God and one mediator um, who is Christ the Lord and inserting the power and the office of the church, most notably the priest and the sacraments, in a way that is not biblical. Like this is not, I mean, the church was the church is not an intermediary. Um, you know, I know the 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 gathered faithful is the body of Christ, uh, but our mediator between God is is simply by faith through him. And um, to say otherwise is to, you know, I think to, as, as has many greater theologians and I have pointed out throughout the past 500 years or so, um, a recapitulation, a repristination of the Galatian heresy, you know, um, a re-Judaizing of things, a, um, you know, a, a denial of, of the gospel. If, if righteousness could come through the church, then Christ died for nothing. I mean, this is a, this is a, a um, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from Paul in Galatians. And I think that's where, um, again, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking uh, because what you see is there's a, in order to, to make the move that Michael Nazarali has, you have to have lost confidence in, in something, you know, you have to, there was, there was a, there was a, a strength in his profession of whatever Reformation Anglicanism was that is now no longer able to drown out the the countervailing argument, which is come home, you know, like Scott Hans, home sweet Rome. Um, and that's a, that's really uh, difficult to, to process for me, um, given the fact that, again, as we've said before, the litany of complaints he has against modern liberal Protestantism are ones that we could um, certainly affirm. And in fact, we do. I mean, that's in part what we talk about every week. Um, but, but, you know, to argue that somehow the church can, um, supplant whatever disappointment you had in the the visible uh, Protestant Church uh, is 
Well, I think that's that's uh, been tried and is a is as much of a capitulation to uh, cynicism and as anything else. I mean, I think that's that's kind of how I see it. Is that if at some point you come well, you know, there are all these arguments that I've lived with my whole life, but. But, you know, at the end of the day, the force of them together can't overcome the visible unity of the church. And so I'll go ahead and, you know, um, agree to some things that I would have otherwise thought I would never have agreed to in order to take a deep breath and rest in the arms of of the magisterium. It's like, well, you know, I understand that from a human perspective or from a Christian leader perspective, um, you know, I feel like we have, one of us has been taken out, you know, one of our generals has been, has, um, has been removed from the battlefield. And I'm, um, it's a great sense of loss, actually, you know, surprisingly. So a real sense of, of, um, of sadness when I consider what the books and things will look like without Michael Nazarali's um, witness and confession in the midst of all this. Another disappointing aspect that is, of it has been the, the response on the part of GAFCON and, and in particular, even our own Archbishop, I think, you know, when he, when he, when he decided, decided to go to Rome, he, in my opinion, he forsook the gospel, right? He forsook, he, he, he decided that he was going to go and follow a, a way of, of belief that I wouldn't say that of course the Roman Catholics aren't saved. Some, some, if, if so long as they trust in Jesus, they are, but, but he's chosen to be within an organization that has so diluted the gospel that it takes an act of God to save someone <laughs> in, in the midst of that. I mean, you, you, people are saved within the Roman Catholic church. They're justified within the Roman Catholic church, despite Roman doctrine, not because of it. So, when the response to that is, oh, you know, he's he's made this decision, this, this decision. We hope we can work with him in the future. We're so thankful for all he's done. I think a stronger kind of response is necessary. I don't think they should we should you know, anathematize him, but I think we should say, look, look, this is a he has chosen to turn his back on on what we believe to be the gospel itself. And so, no, we won't be we won't be doing mutual ministry with him. In the future, as a as part of GAFCON, anyway, we might do we might you know certainly stand on the same uh, front lines with him when it comes to abortion and, and gay marriage and that kind of thing. But with with regard to actual ministry and spreading the gospel, we don't have the same gospel. So how can we how can we share that? You know, I think there's a there article that came out of English Churchman or but English kind of Churchman. it's kind of satirical letter a Protestant family newspaper. I just found out. I just found that. Yeah. Um, so there it, we go. It was this kind of satirical letter from Paul explaining <laughs> okay, that, that Peter had joined the circumcision party and that he had, he had chosen to follow Jesus in, in that branch of the church. <laughs> and so, you know, Peter is now going to go eat with the, eat with the Jews and forsake the Gentiles. And he's going to go and, uh, and, and within a tradition that, it, that, that values both the Pharisaic uh, uh, tradition and the, um, and the new covenant um, and so we wish him well, and you know we're going to work with Peter in the future, and you know, <laughs> and the whole the whole satire is, of course, sat comparing uh, the response to Nazir Ali's defection on the part of Gafcon leaders and the response of Paul to Peter when he when he's in Antioch when he stopped sharing meals with the Gentiles when people from James came to check him out, and he right. said, right. Yeah, right, right. And and Paul was anything but. Oh, hey, you guys! It's great. You're gonna you're gonna do your thing. We're gonna do our thing. Hey, Paul was, you are you're trampling over the gospel. 
Yeah, I mean, like the, the response, the response seems to beg the question of, as to whether or not Anglicanism is in fact just Catholic light, you know, like the late Roman Williams, I mean, not Roman Williams, <laughs> Robin. Um, Robin Williams, uh, you know, said, because, because, you know, I think it's fitting, at least in terms of intellectually fitting that this is all during the time of the um, you know, we just had the the uh, William Tyndale's feast day of his, you know, he was only strangled and then burned to death for <laughs> daring to, you know, preach the gospel, uh, translating Luther's preface to the book of Romans into English um, and smuggling it over. You know, then we had just the Oxford martyrs um, remembrance just the other day, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And then we're approaching um, Reformation Sunday. And it's like, we're all of these simply, you know, anachronistic, which is the argument, you know, the, mm-hmm. the argument is like, that was then this is now, you know, um, that's essentially what the preamble to the joint declaration of justification says that, you know, whereas, whereas those guys really didn't agree and didn't see things properly, um, we know better. And now we can, you know, lay down our arms. Now, to the, to the extent that we've laid down arms, I mean, I think everyone can be very grateful. And as you said before, we can find co-belligerence across a variety of things, even within disagreement. But the fact that we legitimately disagree has been superseded by this appeal towards visible unity, which I think uh, really brings into question the sacrifice that um, that upon which our church stands. I mean, the the you know, if you still go to Oxford to this day, you can walk by the the marker, you know, as a you know, it's not as as um, big and uh, showy as I would like, but you can still see where the um, Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake. You know, you can go where, where Cranmer, you know, just six months later was put to death uh, for daring to disagree with the still Roman Catholic teaching on um, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you know? And so you say, well, um, you know, that was a bit of an overkill, Cranmer, or was it actually the beginning and basis for a continued um, disagreement, which at times was more heated than not, uh, but nevertheless, was it was it right? I mean, that's the question that that is begged now. Like, is was or all of these these disagreements, all of these books, all of this, the foundation of our church? Is it is it a worthy um, protest, or should we all reconsider um, for the sake of unity and sort of united witness uh, to take the path that Nazarali has taken? And and I think um, again, back to my main concern is that. When parishioners or the less informed or the less um, prominently, uh, the less prominent leaders make that decision, that's one thing. But when you actually have someone who has led um, for decades uh, making it with with such, in my opinion, trite and hackneyed reasoning um, for someone of his um, theological uh, astuteness and level is, um, well, that's that's something altogether different. And I think to your point, Matt, the reaction to it has been. um, has been telling in and of itself because you would you would um, delight to think that there would be more a sense of betrayal or more sense of um, of anger even you know I mean obviously not you know we, we're all as we said before brothers and sisters in Christ but nevertheless um, yeah I mean I, I think that 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 the the lack of um, well that the reaction has also spoken volumes about just where we are as as global Anglicans um, overall. It's kind of a pattern and it's kind of disturbing. I don't want to mix streams and talk about something we talked about two weeks ago, but you know, the response to Kenya's consecration of a female bishop was likewise, you know, milk toast. So, so, so I, I get, you know, it, my fear is that GAFCON and maybe even the ACNA were just following the, the same kind of drift that the Episcopal church followed where, where, where we're, 
I don't, we are afraid to say things too strongly, um, to draw lines. And, Which is hard for me to believe yeah. because given the fact that, you know, we have talked about for our entire adult lives as Anglicans, um, the courageous uh, witness that many of the people in the global South have to take simply by becoming Christian, much less having a particular denomination. And so all of a sudden you find that, you know, cultural pressures are pushing people to make certain theological uh, changes when in, if you became a Christian at all, you have put your entire life and family at risk. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe really. I mean, and then similarly speaking, someone like you and Anne, you know, um, of course, are looking aghast at people who are who are wringing their hands about um, what people think about this, that, or the other. When you literally walk past a former church that was turned into a mosque, you know that you were thrown out. You're like, you know, I mean, I understand that we don't want to be purposefully, um, you know, antagonistic. That we want to do as 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 we can, as we can. Paul writes, you know, live in peace with all. You know, as as Peter says, that with gentleness and humility present your your defense of the gospel. But nevertheless, like I'm I'm with you that that's it. it I don't understand because on one hand you want to say, well, the all of the previous fights that you've had would have seemed to have would have steeled you for this such a time as this, and yet um, when we get to these places again, I'm not speaking about any any bishop or, or leadership in particular, just a general sense of of hand wringing and you know let's let's make sure that we don't um, you know step on any toes. It's like, well, um, you're the one who had both of your legs amputated. You know, like what well, you're you're the one who, you know, I, I remember speaking with a bishop once who was worried about um, uh, how he was being perceived in uh, certain uh, groups of people, and I said, well. Bishop, you know, as far as I can tell, um, the people that disagree with you and your particular positions on things, which I agree with, of course, you know, the Bible and human sexuality, and things. So, but the people that disagree with you can't say anything worse about you than they already have said. Like they can't say, they can't think it. Um, it can't be implied on blog posts. Like it, you can't be disinvited from any more clubs than you've already been disinvited from. Like so, so what else do you have to lose? I mean, that's basically my that that was my my sort of I hope. Um, encouragement in a certain, you know, gallows humor sort of way uh, was that you have already lost, you know, like Peter, as misguided as he was in our recent gospel reading, when Jesus talks about, you know, how difficult it would be for the rich to enter the kingdom. And Peter says, oh, Jesus, we've, we've given away everything. <laughs> you know, we've already done that. And, you know, I mean, I don't think the bishop was, uh, was making the mistake that Peter was making, but nevertheless, that's, essentially what my appeal to some of uh, like Mott and Michael Nazarali, you want to say, you know, you have spent 45 years in this world courageously standing against the tides of liberalism with in, in a visible sense, very little to show for it. And yet um, the work and power of the cross is in fact, you know, sub contrario, we'd say in, in, in under its opposite, like the, the power of God is made manifest in the weakness in our weakness. And there was an incredible hopefulness for those of us connected to the Reformation Anglican movement um, that his courageous witness, despite a seeming lack of fruit, was actually um, uh, providing for us. And so, um, yeah, again, to see this sort of, um, you know, shoulder shrug, um, well, I guess now we'll just be, you know, brothers from another mother sort of thing. You know, it's like, I guess we'll just now we'll just see each other Christmas instead of, you know, every other year. It's like, well, that's not what any of this was about. I mean, you know, that's not what I saw. The public face of it. I think that the rise of social media over the last certain number of years is the culprit here that 
we quote unquote conservative evangelicals have been told so many times that we're mean and the fact that anything that we write or preach or say can be excerpted and retweeted and go all around the world in five seconds and we have to hear from 50,000 people the world across not from our local community but from the whole world that we're mean I think leadership has decided that they can't be mean and rather than risk it I'm sure that these to use Matt's word um, milk toast responses to this are not I don't believe that they're accurately revealing what's happening inside these these men who have counted Michael Nazarali as a comrade in arms for all these years. They, I'm sure, feel abandoned and betrayed. But as we've been told, we need to be careful about how we communicate. Like that's the that seems like the most common admonition we receive nowadays is be careful how you talk online and in other spots. And I just think this is a, this is another example of that. And, and sure, we should be careful how we talk on online. I, I, I understand that. Um, however, the, the <laughs> sometimes you have to say strong things on the internet. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you have to say strong things on the internet. In fact, you know, the, the, the reality is that, I think a lot of people are driven by a false sense of how the church grows and how the church is uh, thrives. If you think the church grows and thrives because we're persuasive and because we are, we, because we are attractive because you and I have gone out there and, and, you know, shined, Jesus shined into the world. Okay. I mean, sometimes people might be okay. That's a nice guy. I'm going to see where he goes to church. Fine. Whatever. That's not what changes hearts, though. Not, not a single word that I speak in my own humanity, not a single act of kindness or compassion that I do, uh, no matter how nice I am on Twitter, um, that doesn't change a soul. The only thing changes Although you haven't soul, tried that yet. I haven't tried it yet. Okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe it could be nice to change a soul. But anyway, as far as the Bible tells me, anyway, that, that you know, I can't do that. The, the only thing that he does that is the gospel, and, and the gospel bites. The gospel is not... Yeah. The gospel is not soft, so it it it, it comes right at you, like like, Jesus, like Paul was saying in, in in the first chapter of Corinthians, you uh, first Corinthians, you you know, surrounded by, as the Corinthians were, philosophies that taught them, you know, here's how to live a good life, here's what you need to change about yourself to be good. Philosophy is very popular in first century Corinth. It was kind of like maybe a, a day, day shows today, like Oprah or something. Um, here's how, here's how you can improve your life. Here's how you can self-improve in the face of that. Paul comes in and says, you're so wicked that God had to die. God had to take on flesh and die in your place because you can't improve yourself because you're horrible people. And so am I, uh, in fact, I'm the chief of sinners. Um, and so the only way for you to be saved was for, was for God to be, take on your human flesh and die in your place. And now uh, there's, this isn't about self-improvement. This is about you, you submitting yourself to him and trusting in his work. That's just offensive. There's no way around it. No, we, we, are go, we are going to offend people. And it's not just saying that. It's just also just the various truths of the Bible. God made us male and female. That's an offense. To, to our world today. Well, uh, God, God, 
Period. who exists who isn't you <laughs> it's offensive i mean right, right, right. you are not god <laughs> i mean yeah well that gets even bound back to the theological uh discussions you know which gratefully um a lot of the um, german lutheran professors um uh wrote against uh back to the question of imputation versus um infused righteousness you know another linchpin of the reformation you know are we are we counted righteous before god solely on the action of god's imputed righteousness in christ to us or is it actually something that we're given which then allows us to claim um personal ownership of this merit before him and again go back to romans 4 you know he that abraham was counted it was counted logizomai was counted to him as righteous um you know before he did anything you know this is the offensive uh you know, that's offensive. I mean, we actually were teaching a Bible study this morning on Romans 4, and somebody um, who had been brought up in the Roman Catholic Church, who's found our church, nevertheless, at the very end, you know, it was supposed to be over at 8, so at like 7.59, just raised his hand. He's like, well, I actually like to see um, a, a combination of the two. It's actually faith and works. You know, you have to have faith, but if you don't do enough, then you're not going to be ultimately able to stand before God. <laughs> I said, well, I clearly have not been able to articulate any of this appropriately, because that's exactly the opposite of what I was saying. Nevertheless, it is so ingrained and so deep seated. I just simply said, well, you know, we said, well, we're going to readdress this next week. But that is, in fact, the continuing and persistent argument, which is that are we again back to Roman uh, Galatians? If righteousness could come by the law, if there was a fulfillment of somehow outside of Christ alone, then then he died for nothing. I mean, this was, again, the the, the but see the confidence that the reformers had, you know, you talk about the the preaching converting hearts, you know, it's not surprising that the VDMA, you know, the verbo domine manet in eternum, you know, the, the, the word of the Lord endures forever. You know, this became the rallying cry. And in fact, even on the battle shields for many um, of the Protestants, because that was the conviction that the, the word of the Lord was more powerful than the popes or the councils, even, you know, to a certain degree and the, and the decrees of the church. I mean, can you imagine the, 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 the sort of shaking hand that Luther must've, well, by the time he burned it, he didn't have one, but one can imagine when he burned the papal bull, you know, exerge domini, you know, rise up, O Lord, and he burns this excommunication document in public, you know, the amount of confidence that he had not in of himself, but in the fact that God had clearly spoken through his word, that's the basis for Protestant, the, the protest. It's not that we have any anti-Catholic animus. I mean, again, we know very many dear, sweet, kind, um, Christian saved Roman Catholic people, but fundamentally as teachers and leaders and preachers of the church, uh, we cannot say what God has not given us to say. And to say that somehow you uh, need a church or a magisterium or a sacramental system or something between you and God, other than faith in what his son has accomplished on the cross for you alone, is not something we've been given to say. And when people say that, it's not, again, that they're nefarious or that they're, um, you know, they're what we would say they're in error. I mean, that's what we would say. We actually believe that there are words mean things, arguments are sustained and, compl and complex, and that fundamentally there is a disagreement that has been, um, has been uh, more than worked out over, over centuries. And unless there is a change on the other side, then the only options to us are to remain Protestants and continue to protest and say, here's where some of the anathemas of Trent need to be readdressed. Here's some of the reconsideration of imputation over infusion. Here's some of the understanding of the sacramental system and, and, and treasury of merit. We go down the list or none of that actually makes any difference. And I just want to give up and take a, you know, my beloved rest in the arms of mother church. And it's like, well, 
I hope, and I hope again, this will be a record you can remind me of. I'm sure the temptation has been real and will continue to be real. When I look at the list of um, sad capitulations to uh, the culture that many mainline Protestant churches have made, um, and yet uh, the scriptures and the conviction and the hard-won confidence, not in myself, but in the faith in Christ alone that they witness to is is worth perhaps even at someday standing alone, like Luther, you know, I mean, Luther was talking about, I mean, think about the Arians. I mean, again, we could talk about this forever, but I mean, you know, at one point, um, if you just took a straw poll, you know, the, the Arians would have shown themselves to have been, you know, not just ascendant, but victorious. And yet here we are on the other side, because we had a handful of convicted, thoughtful, and courageous people who stood against the visible unity of a then erroneous church. And likewise, however however it may seem as people part of the um, Anglican communion, um, I believe that's in fact what we're continuing to do. I just feel like, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that St. Paul would have like capitulated to whatever pressure social media would have exerted on him, but he didn't have to hear how mean he was a hundred times a day, <laughs> hours and hours, every time he wrote something like he wrote, he, didn't have it, he yeah, wrote first he Corinthians didn't. and sent it off and didn't hear anything for like five years, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, right. I mean, Paul would have been great on Twitter, but he would have been too hard time. Right? That's for sure. <laughs> but that also brings up the question, Nick, that I've pointed back, and I referenced obliquely when the the Babel comment is that you know there's a defensiveness that Protestants have, um, and I resemble this remark my entire life in the face of the argument about unity. You know, mm-hmm. that didn't yeah. Jesus pray for unity that they they would all would be one? And I point out the fact that you know, despite the differences in language. And uh, church, you know, Article 20, you know, church practices and things across the world that we actually, if you have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we consider you uh, to be full members of the body of Christ. We are one. And so, yeah, so you go to, you know, uh, Southeast Asia or Alaska or New Zealand or Missouri, and there might be a different expression of the one body. So be it. But the idea that somehow there's another unifying force other than the being baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ that has been more powerfully uh, manifest in the and throughout human history is just a lie. It's laughable. And so when people throw that at you, you say, well, can you point to me something else that has taken literally taken every tongue, tribe, nation and people and united them as one, however imperfectly, um, even attempted to show me one other entity, if not message that has done that. And there isn't any because because that's the power of God. That's the verbo dominate menet and determine. That's that's the word of the Lord enduring forever. And so I don't have any time at all um, for the people who are throwing in the face of Protestants somehow that it's a shame that there are so many denominations. Because I say, yes, there are a lot of denominations, but if they are still proclaiming and professing the one risen Lord, well, then they're brothers and sisters, no matter what they wear. They wear a collar, they kneel, you know, they have a guitar, they have an organ. I mean, these are laughably superficial things. And so, you know, that's why, you know, I think as we go forward to not to be argumentative, overly, overly argumentative, but there is, you know, we've talked about this last week, Nick, with the evangelical elites, there's this 
there's this defensiveness and this sort of embarrassment that um, Protestants in particular have, even intellectually, you know, because the Catholic intellectual tradition is is longer. And, and in, you know, you have Thomas Aquinas as part of your stable of thinkers. You've got, at the very least, some sophistication you have to deal with. You know, I mean, there's no I mean, Ratzinger, for goodness sakes. But if you go and read, for instance, Ratzinger and his, his essay, Luther and the Unity of Churches, he actually nails this. He says, that Luther saw that the appeal to the faith of the church was in fact a legalistic appeal because it took away the power of confidence in faith alone for the individual and placed the the trust and the promise in the organization over against the the individual believer. And so Ratzinger rightly saw that at the very place where the church considered the faith to be, the promise to be realized, Luther saw the law over against where the promise to be realized through the proclamation of the gospel for sinners, i.e. Um, uh, the preaching of, of the word. And so, again, th there's a lot more to be said about this, but but I think we can all appreciate that we are in a certain sense of mourning for a, you know, a leader that has um, taken a different path than we had hoped. Um, and yet here we stand, we can do no other, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think so I've heard somebody said that. That's right. I'll take, I'll stand with him. Well, we're not going to be burning any papal bulls on this episode, but that is going to be all the time that we have this week. We do appreciate you listening. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, please be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm -hmm.